Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You know, there's not a place on this side of eternity than I would rather be than right here, right now with all of you. And being able to, to, to celebrate and remember these things of first importance is such a powerful moment. Not just, not just here this morning. I mean, we get to do it every Sunday morning. But the fact that all of the culture around us is also celebrating the resurrection of Christ today is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We've taken a running head start of the resurrection so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some powerful things. We looked at the crucifixion of Jesus. We looked at his death. We looked at his burial. And today, we celebrate his resurrection. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a short little story. <clears throat> it wasn't uh, that long ago that I was doing some working for my brother. And uh, we had a, a business where we did some metal-type fabrication. And one of the things that we did was we contracted out to some various restaurants um, and would repair some of their equipment when it broke down. A lot of restaurant equipment is made out of stainless steel, and, and that was one of the things we specialized in welding up. And we happened to get a call this week over the weekend from a, a place in Midland that had a piece of equipment that needed repaired. So we uh, got ready to make the trip all the way to Midland. It was <clears throat> going to be a relatively short repair, but of course the drive down there takes a couple of hours. So we were extra careful being sure that we had all the extra supplies that we might need. I mean, we, maybe we didn't need this, but we threw it in. And maybe we didn't need a little scrap piece of metal shaped like this, but let's throw it in the truck anyway. And we loaded everything up and, and headed down to Midland. We pulled up to the restaurant, and we found the piece of equipment that was broke down. And we uh, visited with the manager and took it out of service and wheeled it outside and got to the truck and started unloading all of our tools. And I was cleaning things and getting ready to weld it up. And the guy that's with me, name was Jacob, and I said, Jacob, grab the welder. And he comes back to the, from the truck here in just a second and says, so, <laughs> we didn't get the welder. <laughs> it was a really quiet trip home because I was mad. We made it all the, way to, all the way to Midland with all of this stuff, everything you could think of. I felt like we loaded the entire shop up, but the thing that was most important we left behind. And we've come from some really cool places. We talked about the crucifixion, how Jesus was perfected in his suffering. I mean, there was no miracle that held him to the cross. It was his obedience that held him to the cross. And in his suffering, not only did he become the perfect sacrifice for us, he became able to empathize with any sort of pain or suffering that we might feel because he had been pushed to the limits of what a human could stand and had remained obedient. We watched him cry out as, as God turned his back on him and the sins of humanity were, were loaded on his shoulders there on the cross when, when the sky got dark. We, we saw him cry out and, and, and give up his spirit as our sins were washed away and forgiven with this final ultimate sacrifice, forever changing how we interacted with God because the curtain temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
We watch them take his lifeless body off the cross. Unless we miss the fact that he was really dead, they, they wrapped him in burial clothes and they put him in a tomb and they rolled a stone in front and they sent guards to garden and they, they sealed the rocks. They want to be sure that, that we knew that he was dead. And we've loaded up all of these tools. And lest we depart without the most important one, let's read the story. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. We started with it, but we're going to read it again. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and and came back and, and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Without the resurrection, the whole trip was for nothing. Why do I say this? I say this because Paul said it. I actually want to back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 14 through 19 this time. I'll put it up on the screen um, if you want to follow along up there or in your devices. Starting in verse 14, Paul writes this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the resurrection is the central key claim of the gospel. And if the resurrection is not true, it follows that everything before and everything after it can't be trusted as either. If the resurrection is not true, then it follows that everything else is a lie. And if that's the case, then everything that we believe, our faith is futile. There is no forgiveness. There is no life. And I'm a fool for standing up here preaching to you the things that I do. You know, I look out into the world and I see a world full of gray. I see struggles to make sense of things. Even in the religious world, there's things that we just wrestle with and we go round and round about. But, but God gave us a, a pretty black and white central determiner to look at. And I'm so thankful for that. Our central claim is that there was a man who was dead and now he's alive. And he either is or he isn't. He either is or he isn't. There is no in-between. There is no gray, and while we may wrestle with the implications of that on either end, there there in the center of the story is the resurrection of Jesus, and what is at stake is huge. 
Because what's at stake is our hope. We see it in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hope is biblically more than just wishful thinking. We hope for things all of the time. But when we look at Scripture and it talks about hope, it means to, to trust something, to expect something, to have confidence in something good. You know, you can believe in a lie and you can feel hope for a brief spell. But if it's based on a lie, it's just wishful thinking. And that is indeed a pitiful place to find oneself. But if this is true, if what we preach today is true, then it has long-term big implications for us. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to proclaim that it is. Starting in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father after destroying, to, the, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what's a first fruit? Maybe we have some gardeners here. First fruit's when you go out to the garden and you see there on that tomato plant that you've worked so hard for, the very first tomato peeking through. You know, in the Old Testament times, they would, they would take that first fruit and they would offer it up to God in faith that it, of what would follow. Understanding that that first fruit represented God at work and they had faith and certainty that more fruit was going to come. And the text here tells us that Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. He was the indicator that shows us what's going to happen. And there was an order that things was going to happen in after that. First, he was raised, giving us faith that it was going to happen. Then those who belonged to him. And finally, at the end, he was going to destroy death entirely. Wipe it off the face of the planet. Death will be no more in the end times. You see, the hope found in the resurrection of Christ is the hope of our own resurrection. And he stands as the first fruit testifying to that fact we are connected in his suffering our sins are washed away in his death we have confirmation in his burial but here in the resurrection we have hope we have confidence we have certainty that for us this is not all there is we read a lot of children's books at our house right now and the kids also read stuff too <clears throat> One of them is uh, Gregory the Terrible Eater, and it's about a goat who has a problem eating the right things that a goat should eat. So instead of eating tin cans and trash like any good goat should do, he's stuck on fruits and vegetables, and that's all Gregory ever wants. And the book is about his parents trying to teach him the appropriate things to eat like a good goat should. It's made a, for a lot of conversations in our household. You know, as I look out into the culture around us, I see a lot of choices made every day about the things that we eat. You know, there's certainly starving in that you fail to get food. But we see another type of starving. 
Starving in that you eat, but you don't eat things that provide your body with what it needs to be nourished. I believe that we live in a starving world, but they don't know that they're starving because they've dulled their appetite with with sweets and treats and things never meant to last. At the end of the day, we're all seeking to be filled with the same things. We want hope. We want there to be more beyond this. That's what we are desiring for. But there's different ways that people try to fill that void. And we see both of them here in the resurrection story. I want to turn our attention back to the first part of the story, Matthew 28, 8 through 10. And then after that, we're going to look at a contrasting part that we haven't read yet in verses 11 through 15. You see, there's these two contrasting accounts in Matthew. We get the response of the women, of the believers, of those who were obedient to him. And it's contrasted with the response of the soldiers, a very different response. In verses 8 through 10, we see that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them, and he said greetings, and they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Now see, I believe Matthew intended for us to understand something very important. The only appropriate response to the risen Savior is worship. Now we're going to shelf that for a second, and we'll talk about it again. Uh, We'll circle back to it. But I want to continue reading the text in verses 11 through 15. We see a very different response here. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. And they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So what do we see here in this second response? Well, they both started out with fear, but their fear drove them to something different. They, they went to their comfort zone. They went to their place of, of human, this allegiance to human institutions. They ran to the known Once they got there, they colluded. How are we going to outmaneuver these things that we've seen? And then they they left that room with this temporary salve. They said, well, here's some money. Go enjoy it. And, And if something comes of this, we promise we'll protect you. And I wonder what the rest of their lives looked like because you know that the money got spent. And you know that they spent a lot of time after that looking over their shoulder, wondering if these uh, conniving people were really going to protect them the way that they said they were. You see, they were in a difficult spot. In a sense, they probably thought this was the only way to preserve themselves. I initially looked at this, and I was pretty mad at the guards. I mean, you probably look at it, too. It was frustrating for a lie like this to be spread. But as I look closer and I wrestle with it, I see that, man, there's a piece of me that's not that different. I'm always trying to provide for myself things that I can't provide. I'm so inclined to run to the things that are the most comfortable and to turn a blind eye to some of the things that are most obvious, the evidence that I know to be true. I'm inclined to listen to the voices of the people that speak the things that my itching ears want to hear as opposed to wrestling with the facts that I actually see around me. Perhaps there are some of you attending this morning who are here with family and you don't believe. To you, I extend this challenge. Don't take the word of the authority figures in your life that have spoken this truth to you until you have examined clearly 
the evidence behind it. I can't offer a complete defense for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus in a short sermon like this. I think the majority of our audience is somewhere else, so I'm not going to go down that road. But, but I want you to know there are some powerful evidences to be examined when we start talking about Jesus and who he was and the facts of what we see laid out in Scripture. And I would encourage you to give an honest look at those before you dismiss these things because it could be that the sources you're turning to don't have your best interests at heart. That's certainly what I believe to be true. As I turn my attention to the majority of those in this audience this morning who would consider yourself to be a Christian, many of you who believe in the resurrection or at least think that you do, I have some questions for you too. You know, perhaps you're here today because you feel like church attendance is enough. Perhaps you grew up in the church and you take some pride in that and it feels like that's enough. Perhaps you read your Bible every day and you feel like that is enough. Perhaps you do all of those things. You attend regular. You're here every week out of the year. You read the Bible. You serve. This is an important part of who you are and you think that that is enough. At the end of the day, what you really think is, it's good enough that I'm not a soldier. I'm not one of those that that ran away from the cross and has colluded to cover it up. I, I believe in the resurrection. In fact, there was... It said some of the soldiers went. Maybe there were some of them that stuck around and followed Christ. And so you feel like it's good enough that you're one of those. Well, here's my question for you. Do you worship? The account in Matthew here most definitively models for us that worship is the appropriate and filling response to a risen Savior. Do you worship? Let's look again at the text and and just from the small glimpse in Matthew, see the way that they responded. Starting in verse 8, it says, They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them. And he said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. So they began with fear and they began with joy. So they were, they were excited. It was coupled, though, with uncertainty. They were joyful, but they didn't know what it meant. They knew that something big and powerful and, and mighty had happened. And so they obeyed and they ran and they went to tell the disciples what they had said. And on the way, Jesus met them. And when they saw Jesus, they stopped. When they saw Jesus, they did the only thing they knew what to do. They, they took hold of his feet And they worshipped him. And he took away their fear and left them only with joy. Do you lay yourself at the master's feet and worship? You know, I think of all the things that we lay prostrate before. Sports, hobbies, leisure, politics, children, money, comfort. I could go on. I think of all of the things that we run towards. I think of all of the things that we get excited about. The new boat, the new car, the new shoe, that new idea, the success of our kids, the the wins of our party. But, But this, this thing that we do here, this celebration of the resurrection, it often takes a different form. We don't talk about it. We aren't excited about it. We don't run towards it. Instead, we approach it with a sense of duty and a sense of sacrifice. And I can't help but wonder that if the resurrected Jesus was standing here before us, is that how we would approach him? 
Because I don't think that it is. If anything, this Easter, I would like to see a restored excitement and worship of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus means eternal life for us, shouldn't we be excited about it? Shouldn't it be something that that brings joy that we can't contain? I mean, I look back over the lessons that I've preached, and I've enjoyed preaching them, and, and they've been good, but they've been difficult. To watch Jesus suffer, to watch Jesus die, to watch Jesus be buried. But today, today we step up to the risen Jesus and, 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 and everything changes. Today we get joy. Today we get hope. Our relationship with God was changed in Jesus' death and suffering. But our relationship with death was changed in the resurrection. And that is great news. I think it's important for us to understand and take this posture as we step into Jesus' final command. It makes it take a little bit of a different tone. I want to jump ahead to the final verses of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 18 through 20. After gathering all of the disciples up, after being worshipped, Jesus says this to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, when someone is the object of our worship, obedience is done with willing, excited, joyful submission. When someone is the object of our worship, it becomes easy to talk about them. When someone is the object of our worship, we can't help but want to share. And Jesus gathers up his disciples and he says, you harness that energy and you share it. You go out into the world and be excited about this because I am the one with all authority. I'm God. At the beginning of Matthew, when when Satan talked to Jesus, he responded, you should worship God alone. But, But here, Jesus accepted their worship. He was God. He has authority. He has more authority than the president of the United States, than the president of any sovereign country in the world. He has all authority, and we can worship him. He's tasked us with going out and sharing it with all nations. That means that this salvation is for everyone. He's told us how to live. And he's promised us that as we do it, he will forever and always be with us. Because we don't serve a Savior who stayed in the grave. We serve a risen Savior. And he walks beside us. And he tells us how to live. And he offers salvation to everyone. And he does it with all authority. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it changes everything. We have hope. We have a hope worth sharing, and it all hinges on the resurrection. So many times we turn to temporary things. We turn to things with death woven into the very fabric of its being. And we try to squeeze some sort of satisfaction out of that. But we serve a Savior who conquered the grave and sits now as the first fruits of the resurrection. And that's someone that we can direct all of our worship towards because he's the being with all authority. In him is hope. In him we escape death and that changes everything. So it's with excitement and joy that I offer an invitation this morning to anyone who is not a Christian. 
I want you to know, I'm going to proclaim to you right now, when I die, I will not be dead. And this room is full of people who when they die, they will not be dead. And it's because of Jesus. And you too can have the hope to escape death. You can become a disciple of his. He tells us right here how to do it. He says, be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you train yourself towards obedience. Perhaps you're like one of the soldiers. Perhaps you've seen and you know, but you've ignored and you've turned towards things that make you momentarily comfortable, but you know that they're not lasting. You know those won't fill. You know that there's not hope in that. And I have good news for you because it wasn't much longer that 3,000 people who had stood up and shouted crucify him were forgiven from their sins. There's nothing you can do to escape the love of Jesus. He wants you. He wants to forgive you. And he wants you to embrace this hope. If you have a need... If you would like to be forgiven of your sins, then I ask you to respond to the invitation. Will you come forward today and repent? Will you choose today to change? Will you choose today to put on baptism and to follow Jesus? If so, you will not walk the aisle alone. We'll walk with you. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.